Treatment-resistant depression is, by definition, difficult to treat. But there's a new way of delivering TMS that brought 80% of these patients to remission, and it just got cleared by the FDA. Welcome to the Carlisle Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlisle Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Last week, on September 6, the FDA granted a new clearance for TMS. This is the eighth in a long line of FDA approvals for TMS, and this one is a big one. You may have heard of it as Stanford Neuromodulation Therapy, but the new brand name is Saint Neuromodulation. The approval came quickly because the FDA granted the device breakthrough status based on impressive results from two earlier open-label trials. In those initial trials, 86% of patients with treatment-resistant depression achieved full remission with St. TMS. Let me repeat that. 86%? That's almost double the remission rates we see with ECT in treatment-resistant depression. But open-label trials are not enough, so the Stanford group that developed it went on to test this method out in a controlled trial. That study was published last February in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and it's on this study that the FDA approval largely rests. The remission rates were once again high. 79% achieved remission at some point in the four weeks after the treatment was completed compared to only 13.3% in the placebo-sham group that got fake TMS. Again, that's 79% with the treatment and 13% in the sham group. And those remission rates were fairly stable over the month after treatment ended. They fluctuated between 70 to 84%, with just a mild pattern of declining results. Shortly after the paper came out, we interviewed Charles DeBaptista, who co-authored the paper with Nolan Williams' team at Stanford. Dr. DeBaptista shared that he was surprised to see these kinds of results in patients with this level of treatment resistance. Studies out there, and Nolan's been involved in some of these, of of more treatment-resistant folks, where they're reporting really high remission rates in a treatment-resistant population that's pretty treatment-resistant. They're the kinds of patients that we, you know, again, we historically would have sent to ECT. I don't know what to make of that, to be honest with you. Knowing this population, as I have over the past 25-plus years, when somebody's reporting an 80% remission rate in a highly treatment-resistant population, I always scratch my head a bit and am skeptical. The rest of the research team was also surprised by the results. They had planned for a larger trial, but they halted it midway through because it achieved statistical significance with a large effect size after only 29 subjects went through the treatment. The study used sham TMS, that's like a fake version of it, as the placebo which is important because it's quite possible that there was some psychotherapeutic effects that could slip through the cracks when the treatment team is interacting with the patient 10 hours a day, as they did in this treatment. And importantly, 
When asked which treatment they thought they received, patients were not able to tell if they got the placebo or the real thing, which means that the blind was maintained. The side effects were similar between the two groups, with slightly more headache in the ones who got the real treatment. Clearly, these kinds of results need replication, and we're aware of one study that is underway, also at Stanford, that's going to look at the effects of St. TMS on suicidality. And recently, two open-label studies of the St. protocol came out from independent groups outside of Stanford, one in postpartum depression and another in primary insomnia. And while these studies showed benefits, they weren't really designed to test the treatment, but rather to look at its mechanism using functional MRI. They suggested that the treatment normalizes connectivity between the amygdala, insula, and medial frontal gyrus. And that is the general consensus of earlier investigations, that this unique SAINT protocol alters brain connections, neuroplasticity, in ways that regular TMS does not. The SAINT protocol differs from regular TMS in a lot of important ways. First, it takes place over five days as opposed to the six weeks of regular TMS. And treatments during those five days are much more intense. The patients receive 10 treatments a day, one brief three-minute treatment each every hour. Regular TMS has only one treatment a day, and the sessions are longer about 20 to 45 minutes, depending on the type of machine used. Before the Stanford Protocol, there were three types of TMS. They didn't differ much in their efficacy, but rather in how long it took to deliver them. Here's the lineup. First came the figure eight coils. That was also called Neurostar, but now it's gone off patent. And that one takes 45 minutes a day. Then came the H-coils. This is a brand-only innovation known as Brainsway's Deep TMS. It penetrates deeper into the skull. And that one gets the job done in 20 minutes a day. And the third one is Theta Burst Stimulation. This was originally released by a company called MagVenture as Express TMS. But it's now available through several machines. And this treatment takes only three minutes to deliver. The SAINT protocol uses this last theta burst stimulation, but instead of delivering it once a day, they give it for three minutes every hour, 10 hours a day. Another unique thing about the SAINT protocol is in how they place the magnet. For TMS to work, they have to target a specific area of the brain the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is highly involved in mood and other psychiatric disorders. In traditional TMS, this region is located by anatomical markers. Basically, they move the magnet around the head until they see the patient's thumb twitch. And once they know where the thumb center is in the brain, you might remember that from the homunculus drawings that show how different parts of the body are mapped on the motor cortex. 
Remember, the thumb occupies a lot of space there, so it's easy to map with the magnet. And once you find the thumb, you can expect that the so-called mood center, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, is going to be about 7 centimeters away. The problem is that this is just an approximation, and close doesn't count. If you miss the target, the patient is not going to respond much to the TMS. So using more advanced methods to guide the magnet, like EEG, PET scan, or MRIs, they've found that the old-fashioned thumb rule misses the mark about 30% of the time. That's why Dr. Nolan's team went not just with the more accelerated and more intense delivery, but also the more precise delivery of an MRI-guided magnet. We expect that this Saint machines are going to roll out sometime in 2023. And the company has a wait list you can join if you want to be an early adopter. Go to magnusmed.com, M-A-G-N-U-S. One thing that's not clear to me is whether you absolutely need the Saint machines. We already have devices that can deliver MRI-guided theta burst stimulation, like NextStem and Sodorex. Magnus claims that their device uses a proprietary algorithm to target the mood center, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that's a claim that we'll be looking into. We'll be back in a few weeks with our next episode of the Ten Commandments of Psychopharmacology. Our first episode, which was on doing no harm with psychotropic medications, got a lot of questions and feedback from readers that I'd like to share two of them here. One reader asked if it's okay to give antidepressants along with antipsychotics, as opposed to mood stabilizers, in bipolar disorder. Well, as we talked about in that episode, It's never exactly okay to give an antidepressant in bipolar disorder. There's always some risk there. You just got to measure how risky it is. But yes, to your point, antipsychotics are much like mood stabilizers in how they prevent mania. So that would be okay. You know, I have a particular bias towards using the classical mood stabilizers, lithium and the anticonvulsants. And we covered the reasons why in our podcast series on antipsychotics last fall. To sum it up briefly, for a long time, antipsychotics were meant to be used short-term to get quick relief in bipolar mania, and they weren't used long-term because they could cause depression and other long-term side effects, metabolic and tardive dyskinesia. The whole idea of using antipsychotics long-term without a traditional mood stabilizer in bipolar is relatively new. And it's not as well tested as we'd like it to be. Most of the antipsychotics do not have good, robust, preventative data in bipolar disorder. There are controversies in the kind of data that they do have because there are other explanations for the preventions that were seen. We covered that in our fall podcast series. Another reader sent a real-life description of the kind of problem we were talking about that on the surface sounded absurd, like who would do that? But yet, if you look closely, we see it all the time, which is starting an antidepressant in someone who's acutely manic. The reader described a case of a man who was admitted 
and diagnosed for bipolar 1 mania. He had symptoms of racing thoughts that he described as psychotic and out of control. He was agitated and restless and not sleeping. The patient was already taking one antidepressant when he was admitted, and the treatment plan was not to add a mood stabilizer, but to add another antidepressant, in this case mirtazapine, with the rationale of targeting symptoms of insomnia and anxiety. The problem with this approach is in using symptomatic treatments rather than using meds the way they were developed and researched for, which is to treat disease states. Yes, in mania, anxiety and insomnia are very common chief complaints, but mirtazapine is not going to treat those things unless the underlying disease state is major depression. And finally, one thing more. In the chart, the clinical team wrote that they had warned the patient about potential adverse events with mirtazapine, including mania, which, strangely, was exactly what their diagnosis was. Thank you for sending those comments in. It's this kind of feedback that inspires us to keep doing these Ten Commandments. And we close with three offers for you. Want CME for this podcast? Click notes at the top of the podcast screen and follow the link. Want to subscribe to our CME journal? Google the Carlite Report and use the promo code PODCAST to get $30 off your first year subscription. Want daily updates on practice-changing research? Follow Dr. Aiken on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chris Aiken, MD.